Forgotten in the calls for a new normal and the shuffle toward it are the millions of children around the world whose parent or guardian has died from COVID-19. Their post-pandemic lives will be anything but normal. As global health researchers and experts in child and family welfare, who also study the prevention of violence toward children and vulnerability of children, we hear stories around the world about what the death of parents and grandparent caregivers is doing to children and families. We also hear about those who step in to make a difference for the children left behind. That was Seth Flaxman and Susan Hillis reading from their first opinion essay, There's No Return to Normal for Millions of Children Orphaned During COVID. Seth is an associate professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Oxford, and Susan is the coordinator of the Global Reference Group on Children Affected by COVID-19 and the former senior technical advisor for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's COVID-19 response team. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT. More than ever before, patients are seeking a more consistent healthcare experience tailored to their exact needs. I'm joined by Peter Shulam, MD, PhD, Global Head of Preclinical, Clinical, and Medical Affairs at Johnson & Johnson MedTech to discuss how technology is helping deliver on this vision. Thank you, Angus. At Johnson & Johnson, we are driven to improve surgical outcomes and elevate the standard of care globally. An example of how we're tackling this is by working to combine robotics, advanced imaging, and digitally enabled instruments all on a connected digital ecosystem so we can generate, aggregate, and process data. Data analytics will provide valuable insights and predictions to help augment surgical skill and enhance surgical judgment with the goal of improving outcomes and reducing surgeon variability. Think of an airplane pilot who is surrounded by technology within the cockpit that assists in the takeoff, flying, and landing of that plane. Our vision is to create a surgical cockpit with technology that will provide guidance and navigation to the surgeon to yield a more consistent performance and outcome. As this capability expands, patients could have comparable surgical outcomes no matter where they are in the world. The possibilities are endless. Thank you, Peter. Visit jnjmedtech.com to learn more. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Skerritt, editor of First Opinion, Stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Just a note to listeners, the podcast is taking a break. This is our last one for this season, and it will return in September. Thanks to you both for joining us today. We're glad to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for giving us the opportunity for this conversation. A recent episode of the podcast on the faces of COVID looked at the impact of COVID-19 in the U.S. with remembrances of Americans who have died of the pandemic. This episode opens the lens and looks at the grim and heartbreaking situation of the millions of children around the world who have lost a parent or caregiver to the disease. What's the current estimate 
of how many children have lost a parent or caregiver because of the pandemic. So the current estimate is up to 10.4 million children lost losing either a, a primary or a secondary caregiver. So that, that includes grandparents and co-residing grandparents. I know this is something that you've studied. How do you even approach coming up with a figure like that and then wrapping your head around it? I'll, I'll start by telling you about how we estimate those numbers. So the approach that we've taken throughout, starting more than a year ago, has been to get the best available data that we can on COVID-19 deaths or more recently, excess mortality, because in a lot of countries, COVID-19 deaths aren't recorded. There isn't enough testing. From death data, we then combine that with estimates of fertility. So if a woman has on average two children in a country, then you might imagine that if that woman were to die, she'd leave behind two children. So we combine those two numbers together to get what are minimum estimates. And so actually the true scale could be higher. We rarely have direct data about the number of children who are affected. For most countries, we have these modeled estimates. You asked, uh, how do we wrap our head around the numbers? And I think that is really an important question. And I would like to respond to that. An, ab an average public school in the United States uh, where I live has about 500 kids in it. And we know from these global numbers, and the, the rates are actually pretty similar in the United States, that one out of roughly every 200 children has lost a parent or caregiver. This is basically two children in every elementary school or middle school or high school in the nation where we live in the United States. And around the world, this one out of 200 number is quite similar. In some countries, it's, it's higher than that. So it, you can wrap your head around it in that way. You could, sometimes it's helpful also to compare the number of children who have experienced COVID-related orphanhood, this over 10.4 million now, with the current number of COVID deaths, and that's around 6.3 million. So we see that actually the number of children left behind exceeds the global number of reported COVID deaths. And yet imagine how for us, heartbreaking and actually morally unacceptable it is and disturbing it is that when the number of children left behind is greater than the number of people reported dead from COVID, we have very few countries that have integrated into their COVID response plan a funded support for these children left behind. So one of the things that we intend to keep doing is speaking consistently, scientifically, and um, I would say programmatically and even from a policy perspective about what needs to be done. But the other way you wrap your head around it is by beginning to know the individual stories. Can you tell one? So Diana is a little three-year-old girl in Zambia whose mother died, single mother, died before the pandemic began. Diana was being raised by her maternal grandmother, who was her sole caregiver. We call these grandparents skip generation grandparents, and they're common all over the world, honestly. The grandmother contracted COVID, was continuing to try to make it caring for Diana at home, but day nine, she dropped dead at home from the, from the disease as it had progressed and affected her breathing. There was boiling water on the stove, 
and piecing together what happened, what the neighbors believe occurred is that little Deanna toddled over wondering why the grandmother was not pouring the boiling water for her hot tea, pulls the pulls the pan off the stove, dumps the water on, trying to dump it in the cup, but it, it covers her scalp and shoulders. She has very serious burns, starts screaming. The neighbors, um, Reverend Billy Chondway and his wife, Catherine, come rushing in, see what's happened, um, get uh, someone in the little village to give them a ride to the nearest hospital, which is a 45-minute ride, about 55 kilometers. She was admitted. They were able to care for her. She did recover. But we hear these kind of stories all the time, whether it's in Zambia, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in, in India. We have stories from many countries. They're hard to hear. You know, they are hard to hear. And I think it's also hard for me um, from a moral and ethical perspective now that we know the magnitude of the problem and there still ha- the world has been slow to respond with investment in children. In the beginning, when we published our first Lancet paper about a year ago, we, we published along with it a linked report called Children, the Hidden Pandemic. And that pandemic had been hidden then because no one had quantified it. But we are quantifying it in an ongoing real-time way, thanks to Seth and his team out of um, Oxford and Imperial. So now we have no excuse. We know for every country in the world the magnitude of the problem. And so now it really um, is upon us to move forward together to decide we're going to take the, I think, the more noble and appropriate and I would say ethically essential step of ensuring that these children are identified, evaluated, and receive the care they need. The fact that it hasn't happened to now makes it feel almost as if they're an afterthought. Um, Yes, I do think in many ways they are afterthoughts. I will say that we've had some encouraging breakthroughs uh, with the United States. About uh, four weeks ago, President Biden did issue an executive order uh, in which he required that um, children affected by the death of their parents or grandparent caregivers be integrated into the COVID response in the U.S. That was very encouraging. Several months before that, Peru, that has one of the two highest rates of COVID orphanhood in the world, had uh, passed a law which required that any child who does um, have a parent die of COVID immediately would begin getting a financial cash transfer every month to Hmm. whoever was the caregiver who was continuing to care for them after their parents died. We are continuing to work at country-specific levels, and we do we are beginning to see interest and awareness in a number of the countries about the need to quickly move forward and do something about this really heartbreaking problem. Let, let me let me jump in to add that not all responses are created equal. So some countries will see that there's this problem, maybe recognize the scale of it, maybe not, but think, okay, well, these children have lost caregivers. These children are experiencing orphanhood. Let's find a place for them to live. Let's find an institution, God forbid, an orphanage. And that's really, we now know, the wrong response. Now, there are evidence-based responses. They always start with family-based care, strengthening the families that exist for the kids in the communities 
where they're living. And so not all responses are going to be helpful. And so it's very, very important that we remember that if you're hearing this and you're thinking, how can I help? Don't give money to orphanages. There are still people raising money for orphanages out there. They have their heart in the right place. But I think there needs to be and there is a growing recognition that kids don't thrive in those sorts of institutions. Yeah, thanks, Seth, so much for adding that. And there are many things that individuals can do, certainly reaching out to people that we know have family members who have passed away from COVID or even from any cause during the past two years. Um, Additionally, there are a number of organizations that have child sponsorship programs, the big international NGOs well-known across the world, and those have been evaluated and tend to really do well in terms of keeping children in school, ensuring they have enough food, clothes, their basic economic needs are met, and also providing psychosocial support to children as they grieve and recover. Seth, is this an extension of work you were doing before, or is this a big swerve for you? So uh, starting in March 2020, uh, collaborating with the Imperial College COVID-19 response team, we started working on uh, all sorts of epidemiological modeling uh, uh, studies. So we evaluated the effects of non-pharmaceutical intervention, social distancing, and lockdown um, in some work that was, I I think, made a big splash uh, trying to quantify how many lives were saved by lockdown and other measures in Europe in the first wave. And then we followed that up uh, throughout 2020 and 2021, looking at uh, characterizing the different variants driving surges. So it was a natural extension of this to try to understand one of the more most long lasting effects of the pandemic uh, and to look not just at the immediate impact, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, COVID-19, the disease, people dying from it in different countries, but to understand, you know, really these children, they're not going anywhere, right? Whether they're, uh, 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 they lost a parent in the first wave or the second wave in their country, or now we're up to third, fourth waves. You know, if this is a 10 year old kid, their life has changed forever. Maybe we'll stop counting them when they turn 18, but this is going to have lifelong ramifications. It must be difficult to lose a parent at, at, at any age, you know, even during adulthood to lose a parent. Are there certain more vulnerable ages for young children at which the loss of a parent is more devastating than it is at another age? Or is it a continuum or it's different for everybody? You know, I think uh, you have a number of questions hidden within that one. And (laughs) I think the answer is it depends. Um, I would say the risk difference. The characteristics of the risks differ according to whether the child gets age-appropriate help. So a preschooler under age five who needs nurturing care, if the father dies and um, the mother ends up um, in a mental health crisis and is really unable to provide the nurturing, if there isn't someone to step in to provide that nurturing care, We know that under six, those first five to six years of life is when the great majority of cognitive and brain development occurs and um, um, socio-emotional development occurs as well. So the absence of a nurturing study caregiver in a child's life at that age is tragic and has long-term consequences. 
Um, in the let's go to the other end of the spectrum for the teenage group, let's say 10 to 17 year olds. And we do know that two thirds of all children orphaned by COVID are actually in that teenage group. And a lot of that makes sense because it was the older parents who ended up dying typically or were at greater risk of, of death. The death of a, a parent or caregiver in that age significantly increases the risk, particularly for girls, of sexual exploitation and abuse and even entry into trafficking. Certainly those same types of abuses are increased for boys about half as much, but additionally, uh, particularly for boys, there's an increased risk of um, potential engagement in gangs and violent extremism, along with for all children of those age groups, significantly increased risk of poverty in the household that threaten their ability to remain in school. And to continue, you know, what is essential for their future livelihoods in that um, six to 10 year old group or uh, that age group, children are learning um, how you interact with other persons, peers and adults in schools and at school agencies. Just imagine if the children don't have the help they need, even for something as simple as teaching about bullying and its dangers and the importance of uh, normal so psychosocial development and the way that we are we should be treating each other and other people, those types of things can also really have long-term consequences. But it depends because the diff- you need different kinds of interventions according to the age of the child. I think of being orphaned as losing both parents. Is that a correct understanding of it? or That tends to be the colloquial understanding of it. But with the AIDS pandemic, we began to realize years ago in around the year 2000, um, per UNICEF definition, USAID, WHO, the standard definition, an orphan, a child orphaned can be orphaned of one or both parents. And the reason it was important to, or it is important to count both groups is even a child who has lost one parent or caregiver is a, is at significantly increased risk of immediate and long-term consequences. I just mentioned some of the immediate ones, violence, abuse, exploitation, um, economic problems, and delayed school progress, or even dropping out of school. But the long-term ones are also disturbing. Even 40 years later, the death of a parent or the loss of a parent is a documented adverse childhood experience, and it increases every major cause of death in adulthood around the world. Seth, you all wrote that many of the children lost fathers. Can you explain that? Yeah, this just uh, gets to the epidemiology and and demography of the countries affected and of how COVID, uh, who COVID affects the most and their ages. So it's it's a little complicated, but sort of all the factors push towards men are a little bit more likely to die than women in most countries. Men have children at older ages, and so they're much more likely to die as a, a father compared to a mother. And so all of that together, actually, uh, it's it's three quarters of children lost a father versus uh, one quarter lost a mother. So I think, um, Susan, I think you mentioned AIDS earlier. So this is AIDS was a time of rapid and devastating parental loss. This seems similar. Well, it might seem similar, but I can tell you a way it's not similar. And that is the number of children that we have seen orphaned by COVID now for example, um, the uh, 
well, now we have over 10.5 million, but uh, it took 10 years for us to see, it took 10 years of HIV AIDS for us to see 5 million children who had been orphaned. We saw that number in a little less than two years for COVID. And part of the reason is logical. COVID kills people in a very short time. HIV AIDS could take up to 10 years to for a parent or caregiver to die. So the difference in the numbers is not that shocking when you think of the time, the natural history of the disease. But what is shocking is we have really had two huge pandemics in the 21st century that began it and that have continued, you know, now our COVID, HIV AIDS and now COVID. And in the HIV AIDS pandemic, globally, there was the agreement that there were three pillars in the response, prevent, treat, and care. Prevent new infections, treat those, or, you know, it treat eventually became a priority once treatment was available, and care for children orphaned by the death of their parents or caregivers. So given that we did such a good job then, we know what works, we know how to do it, the studies and evaluations are um, prolific because PUPFAR and other Global Fund, many organizations spend so much funding on it. It is very disappointing that we have not had a similar global dedication to caring for children orphaned by COVID, especially since the numbers are getting are growing so much faster. And number one and number two, we actually know what to do. I mean, imagine how much hopelessness this pandemic has sown. We actually could change the narrative to one of hope for children if we would all together insist, by golly, we know what to do. We're going to do it and walk alongside these children to walk them into hope and restoration and resilience. Sounds like a tall order. (laughs) Well, uh, it is a tall order. And I will say that uh, the AIDS pandemic Um, continued for about 13 years before there was investment in the children. I'm optimistic that if we have many of us that are continuing to broadcast the message and say the same thing, like you all, like, like our team, like the listeners, like those who are hearing and reading about this, I'm optimistic that we will see more and more countries stepping up to do what is good and right by children. Uh, Let me just, uh, mention. So if you're interested in the numbers for your country, we have a real-time calculator. You can look that up. I'm just looking at it uh, from uh, May 23rd for the United States, and it's already above 200,000 children just having lost a parent. It's 250,000 for having lost parents and grandparents. And that's in the United States. There's been a million dead in the United States. So in the U.S., it's one for four. This is a lot of children who are affected when you have a million dead and COVID-19 pandemic's not over, right? These kids are still there and people are still dying. So do have a look at our calculator. It's linked from the article and you can look up for any country you're interested in. I'll add the link to that when we um, when we post the um, podcast. Seth, are the models that you're working on, uh, do they offer hope, despair, somewhere in between? Uh, the, the, the models that we work on go from deaths to predict orphanhood. So at this moment, we're not uh, very actively working on just trying to understand where the pandemic itself is going. I think that um, it's 
just you know as as these things go anyone who's who, who, who feels confident that something's going to happen in the next three months nine months 18 months it, it's not something that we can predict with any degree of confidence seth do you have children i do how does being a parent and susan same question for you but seth first how does that affect emotionally the kind of work you're doing um, so I have worked on different aspects of global health, but the work that I've done related to children has only been in the last two years. The, you know, I have I have a kid who's who's old enough to sort of understand what I'm doing, and I can talk to her about it. And I have a toddler who certainly uh, is not ready to discuss these things. But the the amazing thing is, you know, these these things matter, and they're understandable. This isn't esoteric science. This isn't rocket science. This is something that 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 everyone in society has a stake in, should have a stake in. I am probably an outlier in that my husband and I have 11 children, eight adopted at older ages, and we have 11 grandchildren. And so um, I think about this often, and we discuss it with um, our children and grandchildren and in our household One of the things I've been really pleased about is that our adult children really seem to have taken this to heart and they pay attention to any of their friends uh, that have had someone in their family who's died of COVID and they they are sensitive about reaching out to them. Just something as simple as a text to say, how are you doing? Or maybe something as simple as saying, Hey, do you want to get together and climb Stone Mountain? Because when the child loses a parent or caregiver, a big hole is left. For our grandchildren, I'm so proud of one of our little granddaughters, Maddie, who's nine. I was talking with her about, like, do you know any of your friends who have lost their parents? And she goes, oh, yes, one of my best friends, daddy died. And I am painting her a picture. I'm painting her a picture of her and her daddy sitting by a lake fishing because that was the favorite thing that she loved to do with her daddy. And I'm hoping when she sees that picture on her wall, it will help her remember the happy times that they shared together. So I I think it's fascinating that even little children naturally will realize they can do something and they can make a difference. And hopefully all of us adults can take some lessons from them. You know, you wrote, and I'm quoting here that quote, What was once shocking has become for many people merely a statistic. Many accept the daily death toll unless it personally affects them because they feel powerless to do otherwise. We look away, explain away, rationalize. But we cannot do that with the children left behind by this terrible scourge. Thanks to you both for helping us not look away, I hope, and helping keep this this terrible situation at the forefront of our minds. Thank you so much for inviting us to be with you today, Pat. We really appreciate it. And thanks to the listeners for caring about this topic. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. A reminder, we're taking a break for the summer and we'll be back in September. I'd love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. 
You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.